from the Partnership for Environment and Disaster Risk Reduction, this is Talks for Action, a podcast about how we can work together with nature to build resilience against disasters and climate change. Talks for Action will bring you on a journey to highlight how nature is playing an important role from the climate talks at COP26 in Glasgow last year to the Global Platform for Disaster Risk Reduction in 2022. Each Talks for Action episode will focus on different ways that nature-based solutions contribute to increasing disaster and climate resilience. You will hear a wide range of perspectives from around the world on how nature is being applied as a solution to the pressing climate and disaster issues. From voices from the field to humanitarian perspectives and UN climate advisors. On your commute to work, your morning run, or over a cup of tea, listen in and learn something new about how to work with nature in addressing one of our most pressing issues today, the climate and disaster emergency. So on the 2nd to the 3rd of June, Stockholm Plus 50 will commemorate the 1972 United Nations Conference on the Human Environment and celebrate 50 years of global environmental action. In recent years, nature-based solutions have emerged as a key environmental action to address societal challenges. Now, today we'll be discussing some of the promises and pitfalls of nature-based solutions with a special spotlight on social equity, finance and scale. And today I have two guests with me, uh, both from the Stockholm Environment Institute. So we have Karina um, Bakket, who is a senior research fellow and team leader for the Water, Coasts and Ocean Group at Stockholm Environment Institute's headquarters. Her research focuses on the political dimensions of coastal governance, including disaster risk reduction, water security and source to sea. So welcome, uh, Karina. It's uh, really nice to have you on the podcast today. Thank you, Natalie. Great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. And as my second guest today is Jonathan Green, a senior researcher within the Sustainable Consumption and Production Group, which works to trace the impacts of consumption on biodiversity via often complex chains of trade in agricultural communities. So welcome, Jonathan. It's really nice to have you on today. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. So I was thinking we could um, start this podcast off with a quote from the Stockholm Declaration um, from 1972. So I'm just going to read it. Man is both creature and molder of his environment, which gives him physical sustenance and affords him the opportunity for intellectual, moral, social and spiritual growth. In the long and torturous evolution of the human race on this planet, a stage has been reached when, through rapid acceleration of science and technology, Man has acquired the power to transform his environment in countless ways and on an unprecedented scale. Both aspects of man's environment, the natural and man-made, are essential to his well-being and to the enjoyment of basic human rights, the right to life itself. So I wonder if we could hear some also reactions uh, to this quote 50 years on. So maybe, um, Jonathan, if you'd like to provide some of your thoughts. I really love this quote. Um, I think it's beautifully written. 
and uh, it really highlights interdependencies of people and nature and it brings to my mind images of builders building dams and engineering their environment um, which all seems very natural and good um, but it also brings the idea that our lack of understanding and lack of the recognition of our power has led us to overstep some critical boundaries. As you say, it comes from the opening proclamation of the Stockholm Declaration. And 50 years on, I think we're still grappling with these same ideas of our dependencies and our interconnectedness with our environment. Definitely. Karina, um, would you like to add your thoughts? Sure. I mean, to me, this quote is quite emblematic of the prevailing belief that humans are entitled to control nature, sort of a nature that needs control to spare humans from a torturous evolution. And uh, in this context, science and technology are presented as tools to achieve such control, it sort of presents an instrumental understanding of nature, which has come to shape much of modern conservation efforts and more generally how we relate to nature and biodiversity, where species or biomes that are considered of higher relevance, productivity to humans, or even just cute, are also those that are prioritized. And the problem is that as mighty as a human species might be, we are also very short term sighted and have not always understood the value of nature and species over the long term. And as we know, we this is a result of this is that we're facing a six max extinction caused partly by the same technology and science praised in this quote. So, I mean, I'm a researcher, so I'm definitely not intending to demonize science in any ways, but as we know, science and technology are tools, and it is up to the user to define their purpose. Science and technology have also helped us understand our world and natural phenomena better, especially modern scientific knowledge combined with cross-generational understandings of our surroundings, or what we could call indigenous knowledge, has been extremely helpful to help us realize that progress is not only about high-tech advancements, Progress is sometimes about playing along with what landscapes have to offer. And to me, this is the core of the idea behind nature-based solutions. Yes, indeed. And it, it's true, like much of the, the talk at the moment has been going a little bit away from science and technology, although in the same way, you know, there is still very much a drive of science um, and technology, I think, to combat climate change and, and all of these things. But as you highlight, I guess, nature-based solutions has also come to the fore as maybe an alternative to, to the science and technology. And, and there's this general assumption that therefore, you know, this is the solution and it's going to be way better and offer better um, in, in the grand scheme of things, a better solution than uh, traditional grey or hard infrastructure. That's a question that we've not really discussed yet much also on this podcast. And I want to see, you know, what are your thoughts about this? John, if I'd like to ask you to, to come in. Yeah, I, I agree, absolutely. Um, some nature-based solutions have really come to the fore uh, and they've received a lot of attention from researchers, policymakers, NGOs, and, and that attention is an, an acknowledgement that biodiversity ecosystems and humans need to find a more sustainable way of cohabiting this planet, not only out of respect for other species, but also because we've got to realise that eventually not even the hardest structures will protect us from what we're experiencing in terms of species extinctions or extreme events. But having said that, it won't always be a win for everyone. 
and nature-based solutions need proper planning, they need careful consideration of who stands to gain and who might lose out. And if we don't properly consider those things, then our intention can backfire and we can potentially lose an awful lot of progress. And if I could just uh, jump in there, uh, Natalie, I think mm -hmm. uh, I, I totally agree with what John is saying. Our, our work with coastal cities has highlighted at least three aspects, it might be more, but at least three aspects that are particularly uh, important to look at. One is on social equity, the second is scale, and the third is on financial issues. And uh, unless these are thoughtfully, carefully thought through, these are risks um, that could come up in, in forms of local opposition or adverse socioeconomic and environmental effects and ultimately nature-based solution projects could end up being practically unattainable or economically and unsustainable in some places. Yeah, I think you, uh, you're you know, really highlighting some really important points here. And I um, wonder if we could go a little bit more into detail about thinking of what are the, the concerns around justice and social equity? Karina, if you'd like to develop that idea a bit. Sure. I mean, for starters, I think it's important to recognize that even approaches with good intentions can lead to unexpected trade-offs and thereby they could hinder real transformational change. And although we have seen a recent proliferation of MBS studies, programs, publications, groups, etc., a lot of the focus has been on the science, the technology and the innovation required to generate these solutions. There's also a lot of attention on the multiple benefits derived from nature-based solutions, but we see less focus on the socio-political and human aspects, such as the power relations behind their design, implementation, but also the potential impacts for different socio-economic groups. Also, we recognize that it's very hard to make generalizations. MBS differ enormously in their implementation, from hybrid green grey interventions to increase amenity value, habitat for biodiversity or shade in urban areas, through to large scale forest restoration in more rural areas to improving clean water provisioning. But in every case, it matters enormously that we understand which communities stand to benefit and who bears the costs. That, that's right. And I think, as we mentioned earlier, it's, it's quite intuitive for us to see nature based as being wholesome and therefore and better. And for the large part, it can be true, but it is really critical to discuss how the benefits are being distributed and who are the solutions going to benefit? Are there any costs? Why is it being implemented here? Are there other areas or other communities that might benefit more? And we've been working with uh, our some colleagues at SEI to identify ways to promote greater justice and equity in the implementation of nature-based solutions. And we came up with five principles that, whilst not necessarily easy, could help enormously. And just very briefly, they are around, firstly, ensuring an inclusive and transparent nature-based solution governance and implementation proce processes that promote the design of solutions based on shared social values and collective actions. Secondly, it's designing and implementing uh, nature-based solutions that address the political and socio-economic relationships that can produce and can reproduce marginalization, inequality and injustice. Uh, thirdly, is just to every extent possible, making sure that you're trying to limit the creation of economic and also non-economic losses from nature-based solutions and make sure you avoid unjust redistribution of costs and risks. 
Then fourthly, we should be prioritizing nature-based solutions for the most at-risk places and the most at-risk communities. And then finally, trying to counterbalance the traditionally strong economic focus on valuation and measurement um, in nature-based solution governance and implementation um, so that we acknowledge um, and we evaluate shifts in social vulnerability, equality, knowledge, power, empowerment and political capabilities. If I can just add, these, these of course do not stand alone. I mean, equity and justice also linked to our concerns about scale and finance. Hmm, that's a, a very good point, Karina. Uh, do you, you want to kind of develop a bit more around the theme of scale? Sure. I mean, scale is, 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 is a complex uh, concept. Um, I hope there are no geographers out there opposing what I'm about to say, but it is a very important aspect for nature-based solutions. In its very, very basic uh, understanding, scale is essentially the way we measure and study phenomena according to at least temporal, spatial, jurisdictional or analytical characteristics. And sometimes these characteristics are related to one another. Uh, so let me just provide some examples to make it a bit clearer. When it comes to the temporal scale of nature-based solutions, these interventions are quite different from our governance scales, which are usually predetermined to number of years, for example, four years or six years. Whereas the productivity or effectiveness of a nature-based solution sometimes cannot be shown in such a short time. For example, establishing forests takes time and the benefits do not scale linearly with size, nor do they accrue to the same scales and locations of the intervention. So this introduces both spatial and temporal scalar elements that can fall outside of conventional planning and our policy horizons. When it comes to space or the spatial scale, the size and extension of nature-based solution substantially affects their ability to deliver expected outcomes. So ecosystems depend on landscape level processes, we know that, and as such, their integrity and health will determine the effectiveness of, of the intervention. So, for example, coastal interventions are very much dependent on changes in upstream sediments loads uh, that influence downstream coastline stability. Uh, when it comes to the third type of scale or analytical scale, our understanding of scale has implications for how we assess the performance of nature-based solutions. And so, while we often call for a landscape approach when thinking about nature-based solutions, their monitoring is often very limited in scale. So take wetlands, which is a well-studied type of MBS. Um, research shows that there is a mismatch between the scales at which hydrological changes take place and the scale at which observations and predictions are made. So summing up, I think thinking about scale highlights some trade-offs that really need to be considered when planning MBS. Yeah, you make some, some really good points, I think, uh, that we need to take into account that, that sometimes I think... Um, you know, we know them and they have been talked about, but not um, really necessarily considered um, in when people are preparing these projects. But talking about thinking of preparing and planning projects, I mean, clearly finance uh, is a key aspect, I wonder, and which you also mentioned before. So I wonder, John, if you'd like to come in on, on finance. Yeah, sure. Um, so finance is key. Um, and again, we've been working with some colleagues of ours on this issue. <clears throat> But 
ultimately, if we're if we're going to be able to transition to more sustainable and more resilient economies, then we're going to need to structure our finance and our financial systems to enable it. Otherwise, they would they could instead block that transition. And mainstream finance has got to be better aligned with the protection of nature and and better aligned with human resilience. So there's a, an enabling role that climate finance and international development finance can play by investing in nature-based solutions. But here too, we see that same interplay of risks with justice and equity. So as an example, a key concern can is that finance might be mobilized in such a way as it privilege, privileges quantifiable benefits. So that's things like profit and economic returns and growth and less quantifiable and less likely to generate returns on investment in a conventional sense. So there are many co-benefits for people and nature that nature-based solutions promise. But the implication of this is that a, a market-driven finance may prioritise projects that serve higher income groups where quantifiable economic returns could be higher. So what we could find is that more vulnerable segments of populations might be displaced when you get urban greening projects that leads to higher housing rents in the area. Um, and we could find that um, more vulnerable areas, which are often those that are most in need of safe green spaces, might not be as attractive for green infrastructural investments, particularly from the private sector, um, as, as the better off or, or more central areas of the city. And there are some common challenges that adaptation projects typically face in attracting finance, which also are applicable to nature-based solution projects. For example, um, short-term mindsets of investors, lack of adaptation-related revenue streams, and a lack of focus on the wider societal benefits, which don't typically accrue as income to an investor, and they can all be difficult to square with a, a more conventional financing model. Great. Thank you, Jonathan. Now, I know that the financing aspects of nature-based solution is definitely one aspect that um, is a big concern um, in the different spheres, like A, as you, you know, finding the finance, but two, I think what you've nicely pointed out is then thinking of the, the equity and, and justice side of things. I have, um, I mean, I know you've given us some five principles um, that could help to think through about the equity um, justice side of things. But I'm wondering in terms of like, you know, application of nature-based solutions, is there still, you know, in the questions of justice and equity, are we still at the stage where we do need some more research into the, the effects of nature-based solutions um, on, or at least how they're undertaken on equity and justice, or is it more to do with kind of giving, you know, using these principles to then derive standards for project implementation? What's your feel? I could jump in and then John, feel free to jump in afterwards. If you disagree or have anything else to add. I, I mean, definitely evidence is always good to strengthen the case because nature-based solutions are so context-based and not only depending on the ecosystem or the landscape, but also on the institutions ruling them, then I would suspect that this evidence will vary and also what the needs are will vary as well. Uh, we've uh, carried out some, some research in, in Sweden on it, and what we see is that the organisation around it, the knowledge around it, it's quite different than what we see in the literature. 
um, in terms of, for instance, uh, cost, um, for example, information around costs for being able to, to even make a budget around nature-based solutions is very difficult in a Swedish context. Or uh, let's say information about who should be governing nature-based solutions, who is in charge of them. It's also very difficult considering Sweden has a very decentralized uh, type of governance. And so in the end, this multiple benefits, which is a stronghold for nature-based solutions, end up being a problem for their governance because there might potentially be so many institutions and actors involved that they're just not governable. Yeah, those are some very interesting points that might not have necessarily thought of. It's true, like different governance, um, you know, can, can have a very totally different results that you were maybe expecting with nature-based solutions. I wonder, um, Jonathan, would you have anything to add? Yeah, uh, only that I think we yeah, what we we've been discussing is around a, a way to move forward with our eyes open as to the potential inequities and injustices um, that could occur. Um, and I think Karine is right that more evidence is always useful. And I think as a, as a starting point, actually having our, our eyes open to to what those issues could be and there and thereby actually uh, opening the door to starting to monitor monitor them um, and bring them to light and and thereby do better as we go along. Um, we won't get it right immediately, um, but we should definitely be learning from our mistakes. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I think this is this whole uh, topic on equity, justice, um, also thinking about scale. I think, you know, many of these aspects already have been highlighted in the IUCN uh, global standard. Um, but I think, you know, it's still, you know, to be seen how much uptake there is. Um, and as you say, you know, it, it's time to, to, to I think as the more we put these issues on the table, then the more, um, you know, as you so eloquently said, we will have our eyes open <laughs> when we're undertaking these, um, these aspects. So, I mean, maybe kind of rounding off and coming coming back to um, the year anniversary of uh, Stockholm. So if we think now to another 50 years from now and sees us in a sustainable situation, where do you think we might be with all of this? Where do you think we we may be heading? I think I can probably uh, kick off by, by speaking for, for both of us. So I think that as we even now we are still framing nature as being separate from culture and this impacts our notion of landscapes and function the functions and infrastructures and activities that are deemed appropriate within those landscapes for example natural landscapes are associated with things like nature conservation and recreation whereas the built environment is more associated with human activity, growth and humans prosperity. And I think what we'd both like to see is that nature society dichotomy bridged through a perspective of multifunctional landscapes. And I could jump in there to just talk a bit about what we mean by multifunctionality. It's not by any ways a new term, but we are using it in the slightly different way than uh, has been previously used. So. We mean by multifunctionality, a way to bridge this sort of eco, very ecosystem-based uh, approach that has uh, basically characterized uh, landscape and nature management with more technical ones. So 
So basically planning, incorporating landscape planning, incorporating not only natural or not only technical measures, but considering and defining how, how both elements can coexist. And we think that having this approach is not only fundamental for adaptation, but a way to reconcile questions of social equity with biodiversity and environmental goals. Because the fact is still today that protecting places or species is still seen as opposite from progress or economic gains. And this is what we need to basically get away from. Uh, we have been recently been working on, on this to understand what blocks a transition towards a more multifunctional way of living and planning and how we might get there faster and more equitably. Uh, we don't have the recipe for success, but we have some thoughts uh, for ways for having a more sort of clear purpose when designing multifunctional interventions, uh, which is not just based on expectations, but more sort of active conservation of, of at least four level leverage realms. Uh, the first one is about really defining at least three things. There might be many others, but at least three things. The mechanisms for change, what are what are the mechanisms for change foreseen in when designing interventions? Uh, defining what the collective gains are. We see very often that in adaptation processes, uh, there's lots of private gains, but the collective gains are sometimes just assumed or not, not defined. And considering scalar justice, and by scalar again, we, we go back to these different types of scale that cuts across space, time and generations. The second realm is about design. And I know there's a lot of uh, discussions about design in the nature-based solutions literature, so there's a lot to learn from, from there. Um, but again, I think multiple benefits are something that are very implicit and assumed rather than uh, embedded in their design from the beginning. And um, as, as I will take this later, this, this assumptions and the lack of definition and design uh, impacts how we monitor things. But, but before I, I go into the monitoring aspects, there are two other things that are important for design. One is interoperability, basically how the different elements relate and can operate, be operated together. And in, and in this case, we're talking about the different functions that uh, an intervention might entail need to be interoperable. But also reinforces a set, reinforcing a sense of place, considering that many solutions are landscape based, the costs and the benefits might not be felt where the where where communities are located. And so um, trying to get a sense of place from these interventions is very important. And now back into the monitoring, because as I was saying that the way we design impacts how we monitor and um, we see that some of the monitoring occurs short term and in specific places, uh, we need to move beyond that and monitor longer term and at a landscape level. We also need to monitor for effectiveness and performance, and we also need to monitor the landscape service provision rather than just assume it. And lastly, the last leverage realm that we want to highlight is when it comes is related to governance. Um, again, landscape approaches assume connectivity, but we are not governing for connectivity. We our governance systems are very uh, sort of broken into jurisdictions that don't follow the landscape approaches that we might have initially designed for. 
Uh, we also need to govern for, for compatibility and for a just adaptation so that uh, the ones that that are benefited are not just the uh, near at hand or already well off uh, populations, but the ones that actually need needed the most. Great, thank you, Karina. And um, you know, as as both of you also were talking about multifunctional landscapes and some of these uh, leverage realms, it really brought to mind how, how you know, in a certain sense, you're putting for like a way forward that is uh, very congruent to the outcomes of the Working Group Two IPCC report, uh, which has uh, recently come out, where they're really highlighting this need for integration between society and nature, just as you have been um, highlighting today and um, given also some really good waves forwards to help um, achieve that. So um, I think, you know, with, with that, we, we do have a good way forwards in terms of creating a more sustainable uh, future. And I thank both of you for your insights and inputs and what I think is a really interesting uh, discussion today on different aspects of nature-based solutions. Thank you to both of you. Thank you very much for having us along. Thank you, Natalie. You've just listened to Talks for Action, a podcast brought to you by the Partnership for Environment and Disaster Risk Reduction. If you are interested in learning more about nature-based solutions for disaster and climate resilience, please follow our free online course on www.peder.org forward slash MOOC. I repeat, www.peder.org forward slash M-O-O-C. Until next month for the next episode, stay tuned.